Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Welcome to Downtown Community Church. Let's start over in case we do. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. In fact, uh, we all over the country, all over the world, uh, people are gathering today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, the resurrected Son of God, the guy who died, who no one thought was going to die, because everyone thought, uh, at least in their day, who was a disciple, um, that Jesus was going to live for lots more years. If you're familiar with uh, rabbinical Judaism, then you know this, uh, but for, for the 90... 9% of us in here who aren't. Um, rabbis would live for a long time. In fact, the, the disciples would spend decades under a teacher. Um, and then all of a sudden, Jesus, who was their rabbi, who was their teacher, who claimed to be the Son of God, who did some extraordinary miracles, who taught like no one taught, sometimes in a good way where everyone would come, and sometimes in a bad way where it would be so challenging, everybody would leave. Um, and then he died, which no one expected. Um, and today we celebrate the fact that he not only died for us, but he rose again and showed that he had the power to do so. Um, and we know that, again, intuitively, uh, all across the country, people gather together, uh, all across the world, people to gather together. And what's one of the things that's significant for our culture, at least, um, especially in the South, is that not only are those of us who believe that are gathered, but some of us who um, are unsure of that gathered together, and some of us who are a little bit skeptical of that gathered together. In fact, some of us who don't even believe, but we just think we ought to go to church. And that's, I'm not being critical of that. In fact, I'm, glad you're, I'm very glad that you're here. Um, it's kind of like the Super Bowl of, of church. In the sense that, you know, lots of people who don't often go to church, you know, a lot of people who don't watch football, all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the Super Bowl comes up, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, well, who's winning? I don't know, but did you see that Budweiser commercial? You know, and the little, the puppy, oh, you know. In fact, I just got to be, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm not critical at all, I'm so glad that you're here. In fact, I do this just kind of in another realm. Um, the Easter for me that, uh, that we have in our family that I don't necessarily engage with, and it's just not my cup of tea, it might be your cup of tea, um, is once a year, in fact, yesterday, it was kind of funny how this worked out. Um, we went to the Lemoyne Art Festival. Now, if you know me, you probably know this, but if you don't, I'm not like, I appreciate art. It's fantastic. I really like people who draw well because I'm an atrocious drawer. Um, and the hands just are, if you can draw hands, man, good for you. Um, but anyways, we go once a year to the Lemoyne Art Festival, and that is a place where in Tallahassee, Florida, I know the least people per capita. Um, I go there, and it's, it, it's just not my thing, but my wife loves it. She, you know, which means that I just watch the kids while she goes and looks at drawings and paintings and oils and acrylic. And did you see that photography? Holy cow. And I'm like, it looked like a picture. Did it, was it the iPhone? You know, how'd they take it? Anyways, so perhaps that, that's for you, and we're just so glad that you're here with us today. A lot of times people can be critical of that, but we're not critical at all. We're just so glad that you're here. In fact, what we're going to do today might be a little bit interesting and a little bit different. Um, we're going to talk about the nature of belief. We're going to spend about the first half of our time together simply talking about the nature of belief and some things, um, three, in, in fact, specific observations about belief um, that you might have noticed, you might have observed, but perhaps haven't put words to, or maybe you have put words to. But three things about the nature of belief, and at the end, I'm going to talk a lot about why in life. In light of that, I believe in Jesus. Because if we're all being honest, the belief in Jesus as the resurrected Son of God isn't the easiest thing to believe. 
None of us were there Easter morning. None of us saw the tomb rolled away. None of us walked in. None of us saw him show back up. None of us were there to watch it, to see it. None of us, in fact, were there to talk to the people who saw it and watched it. We have to rely on a couple of documents. In fact, there's a, there's a good number of documents. We have to rely on ancient documents, ancient texts that were written down about this guy. And if we're all being honest, that's not exactly the easiest thing to put all of your faith, your worldview, your belief in God in. And before we get to that, we're going to talk about three, again, three general observations of belief. So here's number one. First observation about belief, and again, you probably know this. You're a smart group of people, so you probably understand this. Observation one, one of belief. The ability to believe is the most, par- most powerful force at mankind's disposal. The ability to believe is the most powerful force at mankind's disposal. Now, I'm going to use faith and belief interchangeably, but here's, here's what that means. Belief isn't specifically religious. In fact, everybody believes. Everybody believes in something. Everybody has faith in something. Um, all of us, when we drive home today, are going to drive down Meridian Road, are going to drive down Thomas Road, are going to go 45 miles an hour, or you know, if you're younger, 65 miles an hour. And there's going to come a time where there's going to be a car in front of you that stopped, or a red light, and there's going to be cars crossing. And you're going to believe that when you press that brake, that's going to stop. That is not religious. Belief isn't religious. Faith isn't religious. In fact, Anything that has ever been done in the world of significance has been done because somebody believed it could be done. Belief is the most powerful force at mankind's disposal. Every cure that has ever cured any kind of disease, every, uh, every medicine, every childhood disease that's ever been cured was cured because someone believed it could be cured. Every war that's ever happened happened because people believed differently. In fact, our country exists because in the 1700s, some colonists got together and said a bunch of stuff, and they all believed it. They basically, and a lot of other things, said, you know, we don't believe in taxation without representation. We ought to have, we ought to have, we ought to have. We're going to go to war, and we won. Next thing you know, we got a country. 1800s came up. So people say, well, I think this is what we believe about the economy. Well, I think this is what we believe about economy. Well, I think this is what we believe about slavery. Well, I think you ought to mind your business. Well, I'm going to get a gun. Well, I'm going to get a gun. And we were at war. In fact, people get geeked out about when Jesus said, you know, if you have faith, you can move a mountain. We have all seen medical mountains move. We have all seen political mountains move. We have all seen so we've seen the mountain of slavery moved because a guy named Dr. King and a lot of other people stood up and said, I believe. I believe. In fact, the way he said it was, I have a dream. In other words, this is what I believe could and should be for the African American people living in our country. I believe that one day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I believe. I have a dream. In fact, the entire world has been drugged to war. And, and this, is, this is kind of an oversimplistic view of this. But in Nazi Germany, there was a man named Adolf Hitler who stood up and said this is what could be and should be. I believe this is what could be and should be for the country of Germany. I believe this is what could be and should be for the country of Germany. I believe this is what could and should be for the country of Germany. People got on board. People started believing in a direction. All of a sudden, the surrounding nations had to think about this guy, Hitler. Could and should we trust him? A couple years later, 
The world's at war. Because a guy with a persuasive ability to communicate said, this is what I believe. Because belief, for good or for bad, is the most powerful force at mankind's disposal. Here's observation number two. We constantly look for evidence to support what we believe. We constantly look for evidence to support what we believe now. Now, this is, this is true of, of anybody. We all have this kind of innate ability that when any of us look at any kind of a fact, we look at it through the, the, through the lens of if it substantiates what we believe, we agree with it. If we don't you know, believe, if, if it doesn't substantiate, we filter it out, we disagree with it. You know who I think, when we constantly look for evidence to support what we believe, you know who I think is really guilty of this? Republicans and Democrats. And libertarians and green party, come on. We all, especially in the political sphere, this is why you listen to your station or your TV thing or your network, and, and they're saying it, and you're like, yeah, he's right, he's right, he's right. And then somebody else comes on the news and they said something to the country. Well, you know what? They're a liar. You know, I always knew there was something wrong with them. I heard something that they did in high school or college. I mean, come on. I, you, you, can't, you can't trust them. You just can't, tr- you can't trust the media today unless they're saying what I believe. And then you can trust them because they're so extraordinarily smart. We all do this. In fact, a political science, and this is, this is, this is not just religion specifically. This is, this is why, by the way, great organizations, great companies um, fall because they all believe that they are untouchable. They all believe that they can't be stopped. They all believe that they're not going to go through because they're the leaders, they're the innovators, they're the people. And then all of a sudden, data starts to prove otherwise, but we all view data through the lens of what we believe. In fact, here's what a political science professor at the University of Michigan said and observed as he looked at this whole thing. This is, this is fascinating. It is a basic human survival skill. In other words, this is innate inside of each one of us. That we push threatening information away. Anything that challenges what we believe, we have a tendency to push away, to filter out, to say, I don't believe. And again, political, religious, we're going to talk about the the two really things that nobody talks about. So, you know, anything social, organizational, for-profit, non-profit, your family. In fact, let let me just... pause and say this. We're going to get the rest of this quote in a second. You want to know how to have a happy marriage? People all over the world, survey after survey has proved this. You believe the best about your husband or your wife. The happiest couples are the couples who believe the best because any, filth, any information, she's late again, but you know what? She's late because she does an extraordinary amount. I'm sure she's helping somebody compared to, oh, she's late again. I know why. She was doing nothing. She's so lazy because you believe. So here's what he says. We push threatening information away. We pull friendly information close. We apply, and this is fascinating what he says, we apply fight or flight reflexes, not only to predators. In other words, it's natural for us. We all understand if something is threatening to us physically, then we have a tendency to fight or flight, fight or flight, but to data itself. In fact, One of the ways that you can absolutely turn someone off is to give them facts. Study after study shows this. More often than not, when you present someone with a group of facts that contradicts what they believe, instead of believing what you believe or believing what the facts say, they'll dig their heels in even further. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a wrong thing. That's innate inside of all of us. That we all agree with what we agree with. In fact, for some of us, you're intelligent, and you're smart, 
And you think you're prone to this, or you're not prone to this. You, you think that you aren't prone to this. You think that this doesn't apply to you because you're so extraordinarily smart. Here's what they found. The smarter you are doesn't make you immune to this. You're just a better explainer. You're better at filtering out what you don't believe. You have a higher intellect, you have a higher IQ, and so you do a better job of explaining, explaining, explaining away why all those things that you disagree with are invalid and why all the things that you agree with are valid. You're not immune. You're just gifted (laughs) at it. In fact, the ability to believe is so strong, especially if you're a small business owner. You've probably seen this, and again, studies have shown all kinds of stuff. We're positive, optimistic, always outsells pessimistic, intellectual. Positivity trumps IQ in sales all the time. In fact, the older you, that you get, you'll experience some people that maybe you'll go to dinner with and they just have, you know, the, the extraordinary wealth. You got a nice car, but they got like a plane. And you look at them, and you come back from dinner, and you're just thinking to yourself, and you probably would never say this out loud, but you know, you drive back and you think, you know what? They aren't that bright. They aren't that smart. But if you're being honest with yourself, so this is what happens to us too. We think, but if I had come up with the idea that they came up with that got them all the wealth, I would have talked myself out of it. Because we all, we all, we all do this. We receive what we agree with. We filter what we disagree with. We receive what we think. We filter through what we don't believe. Now, here's the last thing, and then we'll get to the actual sermon portion of this. Belief is easy to maintain in a community of shared belief. Is that belief is easy to maintain in a community of shared belief. The more people that agree with it, the easier it is to maintain. This is why, for those of you who are graduating college or who have graduated college and who have walked away from your faith, this is one of the reasons why. Because you had a community of people with shared belief, and belief was always easy to maintain in a community of people with shared belief. And then you plopped yourself in a different community. And all of a sudden, you're not sure if you believe. This is why so many students, when they go from high school to college, leave. This is why companies all across America now talk about corporate culture. It's a corporate culture. It's a unified sense of belief about our organization because they know people who have shared belief will accomplish more. And it's easy to do that when you have a community of shared belief. In fact, from time to time, you can have one person, an individual, who believes differently who has their eyes open, who experiences some data, who's more open-minded about some stuff, open to being changed. It's not necessarily a closely held belief. But it's almost impossible to change an entire community of belief. It is almost impossible to go from category one of believing and not believing to category two of the entire community changing their mind. Almost impossible to happen. In fact, religious belief is simply belief tied to religion. It's simply the nature of belief or faith tied to God or tied to a deity. And let me just, let me just if you're in here and you're skeptical about God, skeptical about Christianity, let me tell you something that you've been thinking that you probably maybe have never heard a pastor say. That's not because I'm unique. Sometimes it's just because I'm not the one who's, you know, intellectual enough. I'm just the one who's thick enough to say, you know what? That's a good point. We should talk about that. So, Here's what you've noticed. Believe deeply enough in any religious system becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Believe deeply enough 
and any religious system becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Believe deeply enough, and any religious system becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we start to categorize data. We start to categorize observations through the lens of what we believe and what we don't believe. This is why, by the way, um, when you pray, you start to see answers to prayers. This is also, by the way, when you start driving a red Camry, you look around the, the, the roads, you say, I never knew how many people drove red Camrys. It's like everybody decided to buy them yesterday. As soon as I bought my car, the world got filled with red Camrys. Holy cow. Because in a lot of ways, seeing is believing. But the science behind it and the studies behind it also say believing is seeing. You believe deeply enough and almost any religious system in the world becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now at this point you might say, Ben, do you really believe all that? Absolutely, 100%. You also might be saying, Ben, why did I invite my friend this Sunday? (laughs) Kind of dug yourself a hole. I want to tell you about why in light of all that, I believe in a resurrected Jesus. I want to tell you why in light of all that, I believe that everybody in the world, way overstated, way oversimplification, ought to be a Christian. I'm going to tell you why I personally, this is not, hey, this is what everybody's reason is. This is my reason why in light of that, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to tell you about why I believe that at the end of the day, I am incomparable, incapable, capable of regaining a right relationship with God because I'm sinful and he's holy. I'm going to tell you why I believe. Now, if you've got your Bible... You can go to John. Book of John, actually, we just read it, chapter 20. Book of John, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the tomb, Mary Magdalene came to the empty tomb while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, here's what's interesting. When I was growing up, There was a general idea that the disciples, the apostles, the ladies on Easter morning were just sitting there waiting. It was like the ultimate Easter, Christmas Easter present, I guess, you know, that they're going to come out and all of a sudden they're going to say, he's been saying, he's been saying, he's been saying, oh my gosh, no one's in the tomb. And the pastor, I had a wonderful pastor who who had a deep southern voice and he would say to the congregation, he is risen and everyone else would say, Look at you, such church people. So anyway, you know, and if you didn't know it, then it was on the felt banner, you know, it was purple or, you know, whatever color it was. And if you had to know anything about church, just, oh, we're reading the signs now. Okay. So, so here's, what, here's what's fascinating. When Jesus died, when Jesus died, when he came back, no one expected, no one believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. No, none of the apostles believed that he was the son of God anymore. No one, none of the, the people that were around, maybe there was one or two, but the community at large believed that this guy named Jesus, his last name was it Christ, Jesus, who would be the Christ of Nazareth, was dead. Maybe he was a good teacher, but he was dead. Not the Son of God, not the Messiah. No one had a clue he was coming back. In fact, what's fascinating is as you read through the gospel accounts, as people look at Jesus and Jesus is talking to them saying, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to rise again, they just dismiss it over and over. They're so insensitive. They basically say, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back. And they say, okay, so when you go, 
who's going to sit at the right and the left? Because I'm pretty important. I feel like I should sit on the right hand. And he'd say, you don't get it. When Jesus died, nobody believed he was coming back. In fact, the reason why Mary and them went to the tomb, you can read this in Luke's account, was they went with some, some basically some embalming stuff, some stuff that we read, and we just kind of you know, read some myrrh and some things like that. They went with stuff because they thought that they were going to further embalm Jesus who died because he died right before the sun came down on the particular Sabbath. And so they thought, we know Lazarus and Nicodemus took him down, embalmed him, and put him in the tomb. But if you know how things are at the Kemper household, I can clean, but I'm all thumbs. My wife sees it and says, okay, yeah, you swept, but there's like an entire corner of the room that you have, I and mean, there's just dog hair everywhere. You clean this dish, and there's scum all around the edges. So they basically went to improve or to basically think through and say, we don't think they've done it well enough. We're going to further embalm them. In fact, this is fascinating. We, read, we miss this when we read over this story. Now, John, by the way, is writing this story. He says this in verse 20. So she ran and went to Simon and Peter the, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them. Now, this is, this is proof that she didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have, they have laid him. We view this as she runs back and she says, he has risen. And they're all drinking lattes saying, indeed. You know, that's kind of how we view it because they all knew, they all understood, they all got it. They see, they, she says, they've taken him. We don't know where he is. We're think, we think we're the first ones that are skeptical and think, well, maybe somebody else took him. That was the exact same response the apostles had on Easter morning, the exact same response the ladies had on Easter morning, that somebody took him, where'd they put him? Rome took him, where'd they put him? The religious leaders took him, where did they put him? Who took him? We don't know, but somebody took him. And so Peter and John decided to run after and try to figure out what happened as well. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Now, this is interesting because John is the other disciple. He gives himself a couple shout-outs in these next few verses. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Telling you, you should read the Bible. It's funny. You know, you just kind of, you can't make that up. Anyways, so if you're wondering who the faster disciple is, Maybe he went like third grade on him and like pulled off his sandals and just went barefoot. But nonetheless, he, so he beats him to the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying on the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, <laughs> shout out, who reached the tomb first, just again, the quick one, also went in, and he saw and believed. Not that he rose from the dead. He believed Mary's claim that he was gone, and we don't know where he is. In fact, the narrator, as he's writing, as John's looking back and saying, you know, let me tease this out for you. For as yet they, both of them, did not understand the Scripture that he might or he must rise from the dead. Because Easter morning, what nobody's saying indeed, everyone was saying, where do you go? You see, this is a little nuance that we don't understand because most of us aren't um, really well-versed in, in Judaism. 
But these were Jewish men who had grown up, who knew all kinds of stuff about the Jewish religion. And what they knew was something that we don't know. It wasn't simply that he died, because they saw that and that was convincing. They knew Deuteronomy. They knew Deuteronomy 21. This, let me tell you about this, is significant. Not only did Jesus' death empirically fly in the face of what they thought the Messiah was going to do, his death theologically flew in the face of what they thought he was. This is what Deuteronomy 21, as, 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 as uh, Moses is, is writing this, he's communicating, okay, these are God's laws, this is what God thinks, this is what happens with God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, in other words, if anybody's done anything that any government would consider him punishable by death, and he is put to death, And you hang him on a tree. If anybody's hung, if anybody's put up, they didn't have the shiny two-by-fours, it was essentially the cross made out of a couple trees. If anyone would do anything significant enough that he would be put and hung on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall buy him, or bury him, not buy him, you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, this is fascinating. This is why Lazarus and Nicodemus were in such a hurry. This is one of the reasons why Lazarus and Nicodemus were in such a hurry to get Jesus off the cross. Not just because, oh, we have such, you know, faith. We have such, oh, holy cow. Because they got the crooks off the cross too. This is one of the primary reasons. For a hanged man is cursed by God. In other words, his death And his crucifixion on a tree meant that not only were they wrong, not only was he not the son of God, but the Jewish leaders were right, the Pharisees were right, the Sadducees were right, all the people, the, the, the leaders and the teachers of the law, the religious folk were right. That not only was he not the son of God, he was cursed by God. And the entire community believed that. In fact, it was so bad that you shall not defile your land that the Lord God is giving you for an inheritance. In other words, the reason I want you to take him down is because he's obviously, he's obviously against God. God's obviously has condemned him. So don't you dare condemn the land as well. It's bad enough that he's cursed by God. Take him down before that curse spreads to the land that you now live. Because nobody believed he was rising from the dead. You think it's tough for you to believe. Imagine watching him die, having no belief in the resurrection. In fact, believing in everything that you knew and understood from the scriptures meant that he was not only not the son of God, he was in fact cursed by God. So this is what happens next with Mary. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept. And as she wept, she stopped, stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, 
woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, this is kind of interesting because she's looking at Jesus face to face, is so distraught by the situation, so, so much in disbelief that it wasn't going to come back, that she is looking at Jesus, thinks he's a gardener. Supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. <laughs> in other words, this is the ultimate uh, uh, example of when you were in third grade and the teacher said, who stole the glue stick? Everybody put their heads down. We're not going to tell anybody. You know, just put, put the glue stick back up on the front of the desk and we'll all go back. You know, nobody tell anything. Nobody say anything. Heads down, eye closed. Who told it? Jesus is standing with Mary face to face and her first reaction isn't, he is risen indeed. Her first reaction is, where'd you put him? And Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary, and at that name she knew, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. The disciples in the first century, what turned the first century on its head was not simply that they believed. was not simply that they thought. It was that they had seen. What changed the group of folks who at one point, the entire community didn't believe. Every piece of information they saw when they saw the tomb said, not here, not here, somebody took him. Even though Jesus had over and over instructed them, that was how deeply ingrained their belief system was. And they went from a group of folks who did not like Jesus, or not, did not like Jesus. They went from a group of folks who basically denied Jesus, none of them would have said was a son of God, to a group of people who would change the history of the world. Who half of the Roman rulers that we know about, we know about them because we read in the books that they wrote. We know about Nero in many ways. Not because he was great, because of what he did to Christians. We know Caesar Augustus because of what he did to Jesus. We know of Tiberius because of what his influence was with Jesus. And no one would have thought a little Jewish carpenter from a town called Nazareth, which was podunk nowhere in their time. Would teach, perform miracles, die, and then do what no one expected to do, to rise from the dead. And this set the early church on fire. You see, what's relatively common in religion, is that if the religious leader dies, the gathers, the gathers kind of, you know, circle the wagons, and, and they say, this is what we think, let's, let's get his teachings out there, let's, you know, progress this movement forward. You know why that didn't happen with Jesus? Because he said too much about himself. He made too many claims that he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a teacher, he was the son of God, and no one thought that God in a bod was going to die. He just claimed too much stuff about himself. But over the course of the next 40 days, he would show up to them. He'd show up to a couple people. And then he'd show up to all of the, the, the disciples and the apostles. They would become the apostles at once. 
And he, over the course of the next 40 days, would show up, and not as Casper, like the friendly glows, like he'd kind of see, is that him or not? He would show up to Thomas and say, Thomas, you weren't there when I showed up to everybody else, but I know you have doubts. I know you have questions. In fact, Thomas, I know that you said that you aren't going to believe in me, that I actually came back from the dead because it was so deeply ingrained in Thomas that Jesus was dead, that he said, I'm not going to believe it until I put my fingers in the holes of his hands. And Jesus says, I'm a big enough God to accept that. Here, put your fingers in my holes. Thomas did not believe. None of them believed until they saw him. And we have multiple accounts. Matthew who wrote it, Mark who wrote it, Luke who wrote about it, John who wrote about it. We have Peter who wrote about it. We have Paul who wrote about it. We have James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote it. In fact, come on, parents. What would it take for your younger brother or your older brother to believe that your younger brother was the son of God? Just throw that out there. They punch each other. They fight over milk and cereal. James, the brother of Jesus, believed that his brother was a son of God, not because of what he heard, because of what he saw. And the entire community of believers was turned on their heads. That there was a guy who claimed that you and I are fundamentally incompatible with God. That we were made and created in the image of God, but because of our sinful rebellion, we are sinful and corrupt to the core. And God is holy, and God is pure, and God is loving, but he's righteous. And in all of my good works, I can't be a good enough person to earn my way into his good graces. And that he sent his son, and on the cross, became the punishment the penalty for our sin that our sin should have received. The judgment of God. In fact, Paul would speak in Galatians about that particular verse in Deuteronomy saying, he became cursed for us. That not only was Jesus cursed by God, not only did they have that right, but he became a curse, not because he was cursed by God, but because he became a curse for us so that he could die for us so that we could be all of a sudden reunited with God in the fact that I am sinful, that he is holy, that I can't gain a right relationship with him would all just be cool and interesting information of another religion if it wasn't for the fact that he rose from the dead, that nobody believed, and then all of a sudden everybody believed. That the only way to the Father is through the Son. This was the defining characteristic of the early church in the New Testament. Probably the last verse I'm going to read. We're, we're, we're in and I'm already over time, but bear with me for a second. If you're standing up, praise be to God for you. Um, Acts chapter 4, I just want to read this, this last verse. It's verse 33. We're not going to read verse 32. And with great powers. Now, this is the, they started to talk people about Jesus. They started to get it out, the, the message out there. They're telling people, cowards, all denied, all whatever, whatever, whatever. Holy Spirit comes down and start preaching the gospel. Now they're be, they have been arrested one time. They're praying for boldness. This is what happens in verse 33. And with great powers, the apostles were giving their testimony to thee, not to the ideological view, not to the great systems of beliefs, not to, hey, he's a good teacher, but to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace was upon them all. I know I said that was the last one. You don't have to, this isn't even going to be on the screen. I just want us to read this one. Verse 31, Paul in, uh, in Athens, as he's talking to this group of people, and he says this. That because he has fixed a day on which, we, on which he, God, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, this is fascinating, he has given assurance to all. In other words, 
Most of religion is faith, believe, 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 wishes, hopes, and dreams. But he has given us assurance, or some translations, proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know who you are and where you're from. I'm over time, but I just want to end by saying this. Perhaps you have a mountain of sin in your life. Perhaps you have wandered away from God and gone away from God. Let me just tell you, we all have. One of the most quoted and inspirational verses in the Bible explains this so extraordinarily clearly. When he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to condemn the world, not to convince you that you're bad people, not to convince you that because of that trip that you took or that season that you had or when you moved to the new place or with the family or with, you know, when you were in college, not to condemn you, not to point the finger, but to save and to forgive. For he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And the resurrection is proof that he had the power to do so. You want to know why I'm a Christian? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And it takes more faith not to believe in that than it takes to believe in it. You want to know, throughout my entire college career as a religion major at Florida State University, where I'm learning about all kinds of religion, it was the resurrection that anchored my faith in my soul. As an adult, as sometimes my sinful nature wants to wander from God, it is the resurrection of Jesus that is the anchor for me. It is the reason that I believe in light of all of the things of belief a dead guy rose from the dead that no one believed and all of a sudden the entire world was flipped on its head not because of what they hoped but because of what they saw so perhaps for you it's the same perhaps for you if it's the first time this makes sense you've got a mountain of sin you've got all kinds of stuff let me tell you God loves you God forgives you God sent his son to die for you and didn't set the whole thing on a wishes and hopes and dreams, and maybe it's true. But place the anchor of our faith on an event that a dead guy came back from the dead. So if that's you, and this morning you want to place your faith, your hope, and your trust to give you a right standing with God and the person and the work of Jesus who had the power to do so and proved it when he rose from the dead. Maybe for the first time, perhaps for the first time in a long time. I'm simply going to invite you to pray with me as we close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that you gave us your son. Thank you so much that you gave our Savior Jesus to us, though we have nothing that deserves that. You still sent your son to die for us. God, I ask and I pray that you would help us to live for you. And for any of us who are in here today, and for maybe the first time or perhaps the first time in a long time, need to place our faith and our hope and our trust in you, Jesus, we would do so. As we simply acknowledge and pray, maybe in the quietness and the stillness of our heart, that Jesus, come be my Lord. Come be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying the penalty that I couldn't pay so that I could have a right standing with you. So come be my Lord. Come be my Savior. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I give you my everything. 
And thank you so much that all of this is not based off a wish and a hope and a dream, but off a resurrected Son of God, Jesus. We're so thankful this Easter morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.